if you are really clear on your story and who you are and what you want to do in the world, and then you give everyone that you talk to the experience of what you do, I think that you'll find a great deal of success. Hey, friend, it's David Nabinsky here in Brooklyn. Here at the Portfolio Career Podcast, we help you take ownership of your portfolio career and design the life that you want to live. Today's conversation is with Katya Stapanov. Um, in this episode, we talk about how she grew a B2B business as an independent and then slowly with a small team. Um, she is the founder of the Inheritance Project and also Rebiz Immersive, which is a storytelling advisory company. We talk about the importance of story and how to tell stories and why stories matter in this episode. You also learn about how to approach sales conversations as a, a freelancer, an independent, um, a small business owner, um, the importance of being around like-minded people for ideas, for inspiration, and for community, and taking your projects seriously. Uh, Katya is based here in New York, and we've become friends, and it's just such a great time to chat with her more here. As always, this episode with timestamp notes is available on my website. It's on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There you can subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which has the best insights from the podcast and front source job opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Here we go with Katya. Katya, welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Virtual, I love it. Um, well, one, you know, I have to apologize. Uh, unfortunately, we have not met on the dance floor. And I know <laughs> a lot of your good friends and friendships come from the dance floor. So I'm hopeful that there's still going to be a great conversation here. But I think it'd be a fun way to start to talk to us a little bit about kind of the dance floor and how, you know, maybe, you know, good relationships and professional relationships have come from the dance floor. Yeah, I'm happy to start there. Um, well, I trained to be an actor as my first career. I went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and I graduated and I went from an environment where I spent probably 10 hours a day on my feet, moving my body, doing all types of crazy exercises with a small group of people into New York City, you know, the industry, which really is just like pockets of opportunities to actually go back into that state and be, be fully creative and meet people in a more expressed environment than like a bar or a book club, you know? I was like, how do I find my people here in New York that, you know, aren't necessarily actors? I was like, I'm sure there are more people who love to move their body and express themselves. So I found my way to the conscious dance community. I think the first dance that I went to was Daybreaker back when it was like new, no one had heard of it. Everyone thought it was so weird. People were like, what are you talking about? You wake up at six in the morning to go dance sober? Like, I don't get it. And I was like, exactly. That's why I'm going to those <laughs> events because I want to see who else is like out of the box enough to try something like this. That's probably going to be someone that I connect with. So a lot of my early connections and friends outside of my college friends in the city came from Daybreaker, The Get Down, um, Five Rhythms, Ecstatic Dance. I just sort of found one after the other. I was like, great. What are all the, <laughs> what are all the conscious dance events that happen in New York? Um, and I fell in love with all of them for various different reasons. They all have their own flavor. And there is definitely, you know, a community of people that you see at every single one. 
But I also think that there are always new people, people who are just curious. And I often make my favorite connections in that kind of environment. But that's not to say that I don't meet people in every other environment, including the bar sometimes. Um, so <laughs> that, that's my what does that story look like? about the dance floor. Yeah. How do you kind of, I know there's, you know, it's all like kind of natural and organic, but is there anything that you learned about like, hey, let's go to the next dance or hey, you know, kind of making that transition from like, hey, this has been fun dancing and then kind of jamming a little bit to like, hey, maybe want to grab coffee or uh, have you noticed anything oh, like definitely. that? definitely. Yeah, I have to acknowledge that. Um, it's interesting. I want to say I had the privilege when I was younger to just have an unstructured day. But the reality is that I wasn't in a situation where I was financially stable at all. I was newly out of college, thousands of dollars in debt. I had already fought to pursue an acting career um, for a long time. And my parents are very supportive, but they're, they're immigrants. I'm an immigrant from, from Belarus. So it definitely, I think, made them nervous that I was an artist, that you know I wasn't taking a traditional path I was a straight A student in school. I was a super overachiever. So to them, they were like, you know, why didn't you become a lawyer or someone that can just go get a job and then have fun outside of their job, you know, like a normal person. Um, and I was like, no, I want to forge my own path in the world. And I had to prove to them over time that that also is a viable choice. And I think that actually, I got a lot of inspiration from seeing these dance communities as viable, first of all, businesses. So, you know, seeing something like Daybreaker that people would say, that's a crazy idea. Watching them go from, you know, just starting out to now touring the world with Oprah was a, a lens, like a peek behind the curtain for me of disruptive entrepreneurs, people who had big ideas that chased after their dreams and they would all hang out together after the dance. So I would linger and wait and try to connect with people. And I definitely picked up on the fact that there were some really visionary people in that group that I could follow and learn from their example. And I think that if I wasn't sort of raised in this kind of environment, I don't know if I would have dared to dream that I can make inheritance project. I can make my own business that disrupts an industry and be successful. Like you have to see examples of that around you to think that's an option for me. Um, so I think that that was a link between the creative world and the world, entrepreneurial world for me, that even though this was a hobby, something I just love to do, I wasn't going to be a professional dancer. It still showed me a new way of doing business. Totally. Yeah. So, and, and those people became really good friends of mine. And I definitely hung out after the dances to try to go to the brunch or, you know, whatever else. But I definitely think that even though from the outside, it might look like, oh, look at these privileged kids that don't have to go to a regular job. They can just hang out and go to brunch. But in the reality, it's a really scary choice to make in your life to do something that's not stable or you know, traditional. So we were trying to find each other. The community is so important because that's how you can survive if you have that kind of dream. Yeah, so what I'm, I'm hearing a lot about is like this, you can't be what you can't see and the importance of internal story. And uh, we'll talk about kind of stories and stuff as well, but I think that that is very powerful. And I think I, you know, when I moved to New York, 
uh, kind of 2016, similar type of thing. Like I remember going to Daybreaker, maybe we danced together, but, um, and just like, <laughs> David, maybe I met you on the dance floor too. You just don't remember. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I didn't connect those dots, be, you know, before, before we started talking, but maybe, maybe we have. And I think like, yeah, it was a complete, you know, paradigm shift of how people were, you know, kind of designing their lives. And it sounds like also for you, it was around how people are designing their businesses and, you know, creating businesses compared to like, you know, for me, it was like in San Francisco, it was kind of like, what startup do you work at? And then New York, mm-hmm. it was like, you know, he, here's this cool personal project that I'm doing. And then, you know, now one or two later, years later, you look back on it and it's like, well, that's actually a business now. And so I think that that's, you know, it's got to start somewhere, which is really amazing. And, uh, you know, what's interesting, actually the earliest seed of inheritance project really bloomed in San Francisco, ironically, <laughs> when I was uh, on a trip there, maybe it's because San Francisco has this energy also of you know, idea becoming reality. Um, But I was already thinking a lot about immigrant stories. And this was 2018, I think. So it was really important at that time to hear real stories about immigrants because animosity, I mean, animosity is a problem in general. People having very limiting negative narratives around immigrants is a really big problem. I think not just in America, globally, you know, making people who are seeking a better life into the enemy um, is a tool of nationalism and of people who are afraid of change. And so I was thinking a lot about how do I bring immigrant narratives to the forefront? I was thinking about my own narrative and I started writing on this piece of paper, names for a blog, which I thought would be called, where's your accent? Because for me, as an immigrant, often that's the first question I'll hear. I'll be like, hi, I'm Katya. They're like, hi, oh, interesting. You know, where are you from? And I say, I was born in Belarus. And then they look at me and they're like, but where's your accent? Like, you know, as if every single person that's an immigrant has an accent or there's no room for the possibility of a narrative where someone assimilates maybe fully into a new culture. Um, It's always about how we're different, not about how we're similar. So I was thinking, you know, where's your accent.com, all these different ideas. And I found myself in a potluck environment that I was invited into a, a room full of people I didn't know, but four out of the five people I was talking to were all third culture kids. And they were all just like me, kids who are from other places with no accent, lived most of their lives in the United States, but never felt American. And so we started having this conversation and I started to realize, actually, this is a really important conversation to have. And how can I have this conversation on a really large scale? So this seed of inheritance project was actually born in a basement in San Francisco, (laughs) ironically. Look at that. Look at that. And that's really cool how it started as, you know, potentially a blog um, and, you know, blossomed and it's, you know, uh, you know, three years, it seems like you've been doing this. And what would you kind of say about, um, you know, I think it can be really hard to sell, you know, corporate offerings, B2B, you know, especially as, you know, starting from scratch, so to speak. Uh, what, what would you, you know, to the facilitator or to the workshop person that's out there, uh, or to the coach that's trying to sell, you know, corporate offerings. What do you think you've learned uh, from the three years of of growing this company? It's a great question. 
I would say emergent strategy is the number one lesson that I've learned in designing programs that people really need. So I think there's two ways you can go about having a services-based business. One road is that you think or predetermine what people want and you try to sell it to them. The other, which is scarier, but I think in the long run, much more rewarding is to meet people, to listen to what they need in every single conversation. Like maybe you don't even know exactly what you want to sell them when you're talking to them. You're just genuinely trying to understand what their problem is. What can you help them with? And then designing something and saying, okay, what can we design to meet this need? Is this need that this particular client has a need that many different companies have in this industry or in this niche? Okay, great. Then maybe what I'm making in response to this person's need can become a program that many other companies will want. But it's about a different way of discovering that product or that experience or whatever it is that you want to facilitate for that corporate client. I think that a lot of people think they know what people need, but they don't take the time to actually listen. And they might not need exactly your pre-planned, pre-designed workshop, but maybe if you make just a few adjustments, it's going to be exactly what they need. So having something that you know you do really well, but then allowing room for the actual offerings to emerge and listening, you know, to the client, like most of our clients are the ones who gave us ideas for the new programs that we've made over the years. Someone would come to us and say, do you do a dinner event? And we would say, why yes. And we would think, how can we make a dining experience using all the same tools that we already use for, you know, a workshop or a, a facilitated strategy session. So some of my favorite programs like deep dining, they came this way where we were like, great, someone's interested in that. Let's see what, <laughs> what can we make? Um, instead of being like, no, it would be great. A dining experience. Let's make it and then go try and sell it to people. And so it kind of starts with a little bit of around kind of trust, like in the sense that the person you're talking to, like is open to communicating your, their problems or their potential uh, view on what you may be offering and kind of, you know, a discovery kind of conversation there and, and kind of seeing where it goes. I love that about how, how much it's uh, been kind of co-created and has kind of evolved and there's been some kind of magical moments, um, uh, maybe some inflection points. Uh, it's interesting to say this because I sometimes believe that like, or I do believe that people are kind of like one email away um, from, you know, a new you know, a new client, a new job, uh, things like that. And it sounds like, you know, to some extent there's maybe it's been kind of one new conversation or one new, you know, trial version. You know, the other tip I would say that I've discovered is a lot of facilitators fall into this trap where they think, oh, I'm in a pitch meeting. Now I need to go into this pitch mode and they abandon all of the skills that they have that they're selling. So they forget to facilitate the sales meeting. They forget that you can show this person what you do by commanding the meeting and guiding that person through an experience instead of it being like, hi, let me show you some slides and kind of do the the traditional song and dance. 
you know, if you're someone who wants to disrupt an industry or wants to do something different, or you're trying to show this person how you're unique, how do you facilitate your sales meeting in a way that nobody else is going to do it? And I think that that's the other bridge that we found in having really successful meetings is that we always start a meeting in a very specific way, bringing our rituals that we do in a program into that very first interaction. It's also a great um, gauge of, is this client looking for an experience like the kind that we create? Because if it's an energetic match, you'll know right in the first 15 minutes of facilitating something like that. And if it's not, you'll also know, and it's actually better for you because if this person isn't looking for your secret special gift, then it's better to know that upfront rather than afterwards. Yeah. I love that. Um, I previously worked, uh, and some of the work that I've done on this, uh, this idea of like kind of showing what you do in advance before potentially, you know, someone buys this kind of like show, don't tell this kind of like, you know, experience a little bit a, so then like, you know, whatever happens, they already have a taste test. Uh, um, but I love that. I like, you know, so often we do get in the same, similar like job interviews, right? You're like, oh, okay, I got to be stuffy because that's what I would did when I was, you know, 19 or 20 or 21 when I was trying to get my first job. But it's like, right. <laughs> I mean, come on, um, you got to move on from that. Um, and at the end of the day, it's got to be got to be you. So the more that you can kind of bring you and your work into these conversations just makes it uh, to your point around an energetic match. That's awesome. Yeah, there's so many people that are going to do exactly the same thing that you do, but nobody's going to do it like you. So how do you show that in the space, I think is the key a lot of the time. And, you know, the other thing is just allow yourself to lead with vulnerability, I think is the other golden rule. You know, if you want, this is also an acting rule (laughs) in an immersive theater experience. What you learn is that audiences just need permission. So if you show them this is allowed, whatever this is, they're more likely to actually meet you there than if you're waiting for them to lead you. Does that make sense? So like if you open up and share something really vulnerable, it's likely that the people listening to you will soften and open and say, oh, this is a safe space. I can open up about this because this person just modeled it for me. So I also think that that's a, a, a life kind of a universal law, you know, if you want to have something, be that thing first. That's why the word behave is spelled that way. Be, have, you have to be that thing in order to actually have that thing. Love that. And was, um, so, so, so you've done a lot of, we talked about dancing. Uh, we talked about, you know, kind of storytelling and you've done, um, some work on, uh, and we talked about kind of growing the inheritance project. Um, you've also worked on a lot of other kind of personal projects and things like that. And how have you thought about kind of the decisions that you've made, um, from personal project that is, Hey, this is fun. This is creative versus, Hey, this is professional. And this is, uh, something that, you know, it could be a job. This could be a project. Like, how have you thought about that? Um, and you able to share kind of a recent example about kind of the decisions you make there. Hmm. I think I'm someone who just wants to do everything. (laughs) I'm like, hobby? What's that? I just have so many dreams of different... I I mean, they're not all businesses. You know, for example, I'm a writer. I want to write a poetry book. I want to write books. I am an actor. I want to 
create and write screenplays and plays, which I've done throughout my life. You know, I want to make immersive experiences. So I have an immersive experience company. I think the, the decision, it never starts out for me as like, I'm going to make a business. Honestly, it all, all of these ideas started out as projects, but I think I'm someone who takes my projects really seriously. Like I don't, I don't think that some of the world's greatest authors started out being like, I'm going to write a book that's going to change the world. You know, they were just like, I'm carrying this story inside me and I need to get it out. I need to put it out there because it's asking to be born. Um, so I think that if I, I just follow my intuition a lot, you know, I, I have my creative practices, like my daily practices that I know will become projects at the right time. For example, like I know I'll know when I'm ready to publish my poetry book. It's not something that I choose to make into like a production project. I'm more like, I'm gonna write a poem as often as possible every day, maybe every other day until I get to a point where I say, okay, I'm ready to compile them and make them into the book, right? Um, same thing with Inheritance Project. I had the idea and then the first thing I did was write a play about my own inheritance. I was like, I need to tell my story first so that I get that out of the way, almost like an initiation into listening to thousands of other people's inheritance stories. So that play became, yes, a full production, but it didn't, it's not like I went into it being like, this is the plan, <laughs> this is how I'm gonna make it. So I think that that's just the kind of person that I am. I have a thousand creative ideas and I just let myself work on all of them without putting the pressure on myself to produce all of them at the same level all the time, if that makes sense. So things, different things take priority at different points. And usually the timing just reveals itself to me. I don't, I honestly am not, I'm like a big visioner. I love to have my vision. I love to write down what I want in the world a lot, but I don't necessarily lay out like exact timings for myself. Totally. I love that around the practices. Like, you know, for me with the podcast, it's just been every week for three and a half years. And wow. thankfully, thankfully people have said yes. And, um, you know, just kind of kept going and the idea of kind of where it was going to take me or what it was going to lead to, or what was, you know, the ROI, it's like, you just kind of know, and that this will lead to something. And if nothing else, this is an awesome conversation with an inspiring person. And that's good enough. And whatever else happens from there and, you know, learning skills, like we'll see, but, uh, I think it's easy to get kind of get caught up, but I also love how you talked about treating a project seriously or taking it professionally, uh, or, or being a professional about that. Uh, it's easy to potentially say, Oh, this is just a kind of a side thing. Like I'm okay with slacking off and stuff. Mm -hmm. but, um, kind of like, you know, that idea of like, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything, uh, so to speak. It's a relationship. I think that there's actually a big link between how we approach our creative work or what we create and how we approach our relationships. So, you know, I guess you could go into a date being like, I want to get married, but I don't know that many people who do that, right? You, you go to a relationship and you say, let's see what's here. Like, let's see what this experience is like for me. And then if you enjoy it, whatever that relationship is, be it a relationship with a piano or with writing or with producing a podcast, you see, you know, is this bringing me joy? And I honestly wish more people use that as a marker of like, should I pursue this 
with everything that I have inside me or not, you know, if it doesn't bring you joy, don't do it. <laughs> don't do that to yourself. You know, um, I, I, I think that, you know, that's a dream I have for people, but if it does bring you joy, then you're like, okay, I, am I going to commit to this? And then I also think not, not all relationships are meant to last a lifetime. It's like the same uh, parable about friends, right? Some friends are for, what is it like a season? I don't know the, the proverb. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like no, no, a no. season or a, Se- a reason, uh, something like that. A season, a reason or a lifetime, something like mm. that. But I think that that is also true about projects. Like some projects come in your life for a season and you're like, I don't know why I want to make this thing, but I need to make it. And it, you make it and then it's gone. Other things you start to do it and you're like, oh, this is a forever thing. Like I want to do this for the rest of my life. And other projects are somewhere in between. Yeah. Love it. Anything on, um, I mean, you know, with an inheritance project, it does really seem like it's a kind of a deep dive into your kind of your, your story and, uh, storytelling, I think has been, uh, seems like it's been a, a critical piece to a lot of your work. You talked about, you know, kind of telling your story or wanting to communicate your story, almost at kind of like the inception of the project or inception of a business, so to speak. I think that that's really powerful. And, I think like, I remember with like the first episode of the show and stuff, it was kind of like, ah, you know, I just kind of wanted to, to start it and stuff. But I think like, uh, like communicating the bigger vision or bigger reason or why it really matters to you, uh, is something I'd like to improve upon. And, but it seems like that's something that you just really kind of embrace and jump out with. What, What do you think? Why do you think that is? And how do you think stories are so important for the work that we do? Big question. I always want to like pull out Rebecca Solnit's quote on storytelling. It's like stories are, I think she says stories are the compass that we live by. They direct us in life. And I think that it's so interesting that it's often the last thing people think about when they're making something, but it's the part of what they're doing that everyone can connect to (laughs) because we love stories. It's, we're raised on stories. We tell ourselves stories, whether or not we want to admit it or, or not. And I think that you'll, you might forget what someone said to you, but you will never forget how they made you feel. And stories make us feel. You start to tell a story and it takes you to your childhood, to your future, start to resonate with the person. You start to live through that experience with them, especially if the person is a good storyteller or really connected to story. And something that I learned from a great teacher named Joan Shekel, who is like a story doctor in Hollywood. So what she does, all people from all walks of life come to her, writers, producers, actors, directors, actual playwrights and screenwriters. She accepts them all. She doesn't discriminate about, you know, what your field is. If you want to come learn about what makes a good story, you can come to her class. And she says, you know, the function of theater, which is, I think, all storytelling is theatrical. Like Shakespeare said, we're all merely players on the great stage of life. The function of theater is to entertain. But what humans find most entertaining is seeing and grasping at truth. So if a story feels true when someone's telling it, whether it's authentic to them or they're really connected to it, that story is going to leave a much deeper impact on you than a story that isn't true or authentic to the person telling it. And I think we don't spend enough time 
understanding what our story is or asking ourselves, like, what is the story that I tell about the things I do? What is the story of why David started this podcast? Maybe I should ask you, you know, what, if you, if you were to say, if you were to look all the way back and be like, you know, why, why did I think this is something that I want to do? You're going to probably find some kind of great nugget for yourself about a truth. And then that truth is going to be something that other people really resonate with. So I think storytelling is at the heart of all communication. And if we have a chance to make it a good story, do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, the first episode was with my roommate at the time. I think that's been a a decent kind of a decent story. I'm not sure if it's a, an entertaining one or not, uh, but it's, you know, that's where I started. And I think that's been a story that I've, you know, kind of remembered and stuck with. And I think that's been a really great kind of origin story, which I think is important for projects and, and this, the story arc, so to speak. Anything else that you think um, is really important for facilitators, for uh, small business owners that are trying to uh, sell to or partner with corporations so that they can, you know, kind of sustain themselves a little bit. Is there anything else that you think that we missed there, Katya? And No, I think it's a synthesis of everything we talked about. I think always go back to what is the story you're telling with your offering? What is the story you choose to tell to, to the people that you talk to about what you do? And make sure it's a story that you like and that is truthful and like really connected to your mission and purpose. And then what's the experience that you give people? So I think it's those two things working hand in hand. If you are really clear on your story and who you are and what you want to do in the world, and then you give everyone that you talk to the experience of what you do, I think that you'll find a great deal of success. And I think if you're struggling and you feel like people aren't connecting for whatever reason with what you're saying, what you're showing, probably it's something to do with the story that you tell because it should be as easy. Uh, you know, one thing I'll leave you with is a, um, an exercise. Talk about what you do to a kid, like age seven or younger and notice, are they engaged? Are they hanging on your every word or are they distracted, doing something else, falling out of their seat, like halfway through you trying to tell them what you do? And if you can get a seven-year-old to hang on every word of your story, it's a story that's going to resonate with everyone in the world. Beautiful. Love it. Well, Katya, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, please let listeners know where they can learn more about the Inheritance Project and, and any anything else that you'd like to share and leave with people. Uh, but this was just so great. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Sure. So if you're interested in the Inheritance Project, you can find all about us at inheritanceproject.org or on Instagram at inheritanceproject. And if you're interested in story coaching or story consulting, you can also find experiencerebus.com, which is my immersive storytelling company with my co-founder, Jesse Carey. And we consult storytellers in any medium, podcast, book, anything that you might be creating. If you need help with your story, let us know. So that's something that we love to do as well. And then, of course, me. You can find me at Katya Stepanov, katyastepanov.com, Katya Stepanov on Instagram. It's just my name everywhere. So you'll know how to find me. I love it. Thank you so much, Katya. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, David. 
Hey friend, thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Portfolio Career Podcast. Would love to hear what you learned and what you enjoyed. Um, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever is best for you. And as a reminder, I'm just one email away as well. This episode with timestamp notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There you can subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which includes the best insights from the podcast and friend-sourced opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Thank you so much.